Doesn't matter how big you are, every place has music. We have every major touring act in the world playing here, but it's just as important to have the grassroots. Stop thinking about Music City and just start thinking about music in our city. Back in October of 2013, a curious thing happened. Mayor Rob Ford, then knee-deep in controversy over bizarre behavior and substance abuse, traveled to Austin, Texas for the annual Austin City Limits Music Festival. There he signed the Austin-Toronto Music City Alliance, under which the two cities pledged to share best practices around the economic and cultural development of their respective music scenes. In doing so, Ford, who regularly railed against downtown elites, set Toronto on a path to being officially designated a music city. Welcome to Shift Disturbers, the MPI podcast that highlights the people, research, and ideas changing the way we think about the world. I'm your host, Ian Gormley, writer and content producer here at the Martin Prosperity Institute at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. Today we kick off 2018 by looking at the term Music City, its meaning, intent, and how such recognitions shape cultural policy in cities. It's been a long road here in Toronto. We officially became a music city in the spring of 2016, following the creation of the Toronto Music Advisory Council, commonly known as TMAC, two years previous. Mike Tanner, previously Director of Operations at the annual North by Northeast Music Festival, was named Music Sector Development Officer. As he explains, the goal of declaring any place a music city is to have music recognized as an important piece of the town's cultural and economic fabric. In the broader sense of the term, I think it it really refers to any city that uh, values music, that recognizes music as an integral part of the cultural, but even more than the cultural, the economic fabric. Every one of the music cities that I know of, Toronto included, has understood at a, at a deep level that music is a, an entity that can benefit the economics. It helps with not just the Richard Florida, Jane Jacobs kind of sense of building community and community at street level, but it actually creates and provides and sustains jobs. In the community, it has spillover benefits on retail, on transit, on hospitality. And music cities recognize that the value of the industry that way, rather than just being cultural ephemera, they are to be taken seriously uh, as any other industry would be. Notably, many of the policies that successful music cities are built on have few price tags attached to them. It's in many ways not a hard cost to the city to, to adopt these policies and to recognize these things and to, and to place a value on them. It's, it's, a lot of it is, is really um, philosophical, conceptual, and, and then there's some things the city can govern and look after, and then some things that the city can actually help elevate in the private sector by just saying, you know what, we think this is worthwhile. We want to value this and, and show up and help support it. Mm-hmm. With, with the things that are led by the private sector, those are going to happen um, with or without the, the city's involvement, any any city. And, and, and frankly, sometimes you, you see what cities do actually impede, you know, what, what the private sector of the music community are, are, are going to do. Being the go-between for the music industry and the municipal government comes with a lot of expectations, particularly from any large, diffused local music community. Unfortunately, Mike can't be everything to everyone. In fact, he and the city are often hamstrung by what the city actually has purview over. So no, he can't get your band a gig. We're talking here about things like uh, integrating the growth of the music sector with the needs of the community as as a widespread, um, varied 
population. Um, there's always a balance with every city that's uh, growing and gentrifying and, and uh, becoming more dense uh, in, in a population way um, with things like noise. You know, uh, balancing the needs of the community around with with the needs of a, of, a, of a music venue. So the city should and could get involved in those kinds of discussions and 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 hear from all stakeholders and try to create policies that are business friendly for the music industry while at the same time allowing people to live and 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 work and and sleep. Another thing, uh, and and we see this here in Toronto, is is with the idea of what different parts of the city are zoned in order to permit or not permit. And and I think that that kind of discussion happens uh, in a lot of other realms besides music as well, when you're talking about transit or residential development or, or the change from industrial to other kinds of uses uh, in, in some of our cities across North America. That's where the city, I think, could and should get involved and say, well, we've got a changing population, changing demographic, the economy is changing. Can we allow more flexibility, for example, in our zoning bylaws to accommodate music uh, in areas of the city where up to now it, it hasn't been able to accommodate? The concept of musical sister cities dates back decades. For example, Belfast and Nashville entered such a partnership back in 1995. But the robust policies that are being developed around such initiatives are relatively new. It's a term that uh, made its way into the common vocabulary six and ten years ago. Some of that probably goes back to Austin, Texas, and the interestingly universal recognition that they had stumbled on some sort of a magic elixir. So it became the fastest growing city in the U.S. and it seemed that a lot of them were young, educated people from the U.S. who would, you know, graduate from university in Trenton, New Jersey and think, where shall I go? Well, Austin is is warm, it's a liberal bastion in, in the southern United States and it's got this fantastic music scene. Let me let me check that out. And then as a result, uh, you had the incredible growth of the tech sector down there. A lot of this obviously was anchored by the growth of South by Southwest. Twitter was launched there in 2007, and, and Spotify had its American launch in 2011, and it just really gathered steam. And Austin became almost a brand, like like a product you could buy. And I think cities around the world thought, mm, yeah, I want some of that. I actually think that we need to uh, give credit to Music Canada for initiating some of this discussion. They've certainly done a lot of the groundbreaking work in uh, research on, on this. Music Canada commissioned a study called Accelerating Toronto's Music Industry Growth. It's a comparison between Austin, Texas, and Toronto, and, and looking at uh, what Austin had in terms of assets and government structure and liaison between government and, and the music community, and what Toronto could or should do to help galvanize some of the same activity. Toronto subsequently actually followed some of those things to a T in that they um, they formed a division as, as part of economic development and culture uh, at the city, a, a unit called Film and Entertainment Industries, of which music is part. They created a Toronto Music Advisory Council, a now 30-member plus six councillors body. They built a relationship of finally a signed alliance, Music Cities Alliance, with, with Austin, and they hired a music sector development officer, and, and all of those things moved the needle a little bit further, certainly in terms of, of getting information and, and communication from the music community into City Hall. Music Canada subsequently has 
published a report actually called Mastering of a Music City, which, which has really kind of coalesced and focused a lot of the talk around what is a music city and what does it mean and what are its attributes and what sorts of things does it hold sacred and what sorts of policies does it try to enact to, to get there. Shane Shapiro, originally from Toronto, heads the London-England-based Sound Diplomacy, a music agency that helps governments develop their local music scenes in long-term, sustainable ways. Shapiro and his company have been leaders in what they call the Music City Movement. Still, he says, the term is ultimately meaningless if a city isn't willing to look at its local scene in the same way it would any other area of economic or cultural policy. Yes, you are a music city, but the, the, the name doesn't mean anything. Every city is a music city. Towns are music cities doesn't matter how big you are. Every place has music. Even places in the world where music is illegal have music. Yeah, so do we call every city a school city? Do we call every city a hospital city? We're often just working to make people realize that we plan for schools, we plan for hospitals, we plan for care homes. We have to think about how music fits into a city like anything else, and we need to plan for music. And that means planning for a number of things. It's about ensuring that the infrastructure is in place to support a music ecology and whether the people participating in that music ecology uh, believe that music is enriching their life. Music is as important as, as any other um, subject in education. Uh, we have to think about how music factors into catering for our aging population and that most of our festivals are catered towards young people. And we have to think about our role in civic society as an industry. And the thing is, is the music industry has no specific expertise in how to do this. And I think that the industry has to recognize that it is, it is part of a conversation that it may or may not be leading. We have to understand what we can change within the existing system and how our expertise can be used to support and improve the system. I just want music to be an equal part of the discussion. As we've seen, Music City is an all-encompassing term. What it's not is one big annual music festival with a huge international headliner. And while an event like that might look appealing from a tourism perspective, it doesn't build a live music culture for the other 364 days of the year. When you talk about that term Music City, uh, it's, it can be maybe a little bit of a rhetorical trap because it sometimes suggests that all you need to do is add magic powder to the water and snap your fingers and you'll be a music city. I'm sometimes actually a little suspicious of the term because to me, in some people's perception, it can oversimplify what that means. What it means is, sadly, sometimes a long, slow, incremental process of, of strategy and policy changes on things that sometimes will take six months or six years to enact. You hope they don't take six years because by then, you know, you could have lost some of what is essential and ineffable about your scene. Um, But uh, to expect that, you know, your mayor or your city council is going to declare your city a music city and next month all will be well is unrealistic. To declare that you are now a music city and so that you are aware more than you were before of concerns that the music community has and that you're working on them to the degree you can within City Hall is more realistic. That's what we're seeing here in Toronto. That's what I think we're seeing in most of the cities that I've named that that I'm aware of. Um, And to a greater or lesser degree, you know, you're you're successful. I mean, it's, it's not a... 
um, a panacea. It's not a boom, we're done, okay, on to the next problem. Shane gives the example of London's artist communities as a cautionary tale for what happens when a city fails to properly invest in its ecosystem. If we don't invest in our grassroots, then we're not going to have the festival headliners that we enjoy now. And, you know, we've seen this in the UK. In 2005, 2006, it took an average of eight to ten years for an artist from when they released their first album to headline a 20,000 capacity festival. Now it's 16 to 18 years. Uh, That is a problem. We have to see that it's not just an industry problem, it's an education problem, it's an infrastructure problem, it's a servicing problem, it's a social cohesion problem. And we have to work to say, how can music be inserted into all these things? It's a, sometimes I analogize it by saying, in Toronto, you don't have the Toronto Maple Leafs without also having Timbits Hockey, without having GTHL single A happening all over the city. You need both ends to really consider yourself a aspirational or you know fully fleshed out music city. I don't think there is a fully fleshed out music. It's, it's a trajectory. It's points on a continuum. In a city like Toronto, we've got the top end of it. You can go anywhere in the world right now from Buenos Aires to Belgrade and say Toronto and music in the same sentence and people are going to go, ah, Drake, ah, The Weeknd. Yes, those artists are great ambassadors for, for Toronto. We have them playing here. We have every major touring act in the world coming through and playing here. But it's just as important, maybe even more so in a way, to have the grassroots be be healthy, to have young people coming up, forming bands or uh, getting together as as DJ and producer and MC and finding places to perform, building a community, finding an audience and having that kind of thing happening at street level and and then everything in between and and all of the other companies be they management agency record company promoter event organizer that sustain and nurture that part of the ecosystem like many major urban hubs closing venues has become a hot topic in toronto as land values skyrocket cultural spaces begin to look less and less like a good business bet in many ways our cultural spaces have become canaries in a coal mine Their appearance is often the first sign of a neighborhood change, while their departure signals a downturn in affordability. But there the city is limited by what they can do about it. It's a major concern for Mike and City Council in general. They realize that creative workers aren't bound to the city limits. They can always pick up and leave for cheaper digs. And when you look at music venues, often they are operating uh, close to the bottom line. Uh, The business model may be bring a band in or a DJ in, pay the artist, sell beer and and pay your rent and pay your staff and keep the lights on. Uh, that's a tough business model uh, to generate all your revenue off if you are uh, in an area of the city where, where the property values are going up and up and up and up and up. Often I think it's coffee shops, bookstores, music venues, other Um, really important grassroots, street-level, cultural assets that are the first to feel the pinch and maybe the first to pack up and and disappear, which is to everyone's loss. You and I could go to Paris and and we'll we'll visit uh, Montmartre, and and we go there because we see Toulouse-Lautrec and Picasso had their studios there. Why did they have their studios there? Because 100 years ago, that's where they could afford to be. They couldn't afford to be down by the Hotel de Ville. In, in Toronto, we're, we're lucky because we're geographically a very big city. We're a very diverse city. We already have creative and cultural hubs happening in different parts of the city. Our responsibility is, is to see that we can help nurture and, and allow those things to develop so that they don't 
leave. We see in Toronto the same sorts of things that are happening uh, in, in every growing, thriving city, certainly in North America, and, and we know about um, London, England as well. Apparently, London, England, we've, we've heard lost 40% of its music venues between 2007 and 2014, which is a massive... This is like a, you know, a environmental protection kind of level of, of alarm there. Uh, we're quite well connected uh, here in North America, not just with Austin, but with San Francisco, Seattle, Denver... Nashville, New York, um, Chicago. We know something about what's going on in Montreal and Vancouver as well. And, and yeah, this is an inexorable thing. Uh, all you have to do is pick up the paper and read about um, the bubble, you know, in, in Toronto and, and Canada and North American housing markets and real estate markets. Uh, there are market forces. Uh, the city doesn't have a mechanism. No city, I think, has a mechanism to get in between somebody who owns a building and, and who or what they're going to sell or lease that building to. Um, but as uh, music venues, because of these market forces, get uh, forced out is the wrong way to put it, but, but when, when the market forces make it impossible for them to continue to exist in very expensive parts of the city, then the city... Uh, I think has has a role in looking at where else in the city can can we make it possible for these venues to to locate to relocate to reopen. Um, currently, with Toronto, we've got um, areas of the city that are zoned as industrial or employment land, and we're speaking here in in City Hall with the planning department about the idea of um, creating more flexibility so so that music venues may be able to go to those areas which are which are much cheaper. Mm -hmm. uh, per square foot right now and which may be able to accommodate those sorts of things. We don't want them going down the 401 to Hamilton. For his part, both in his official capacity as Toronto's music sector development officer and as a fan, Mike's hope is that music continues to be a valued part of any urban environment. I hope that young people who are maybe now teenagers uh, and are going to be fans or artists or to work at least part-time in in music will have a scene here it won't be the same uh i think you can pay too much homage to the past what will come will be different than what came before but i really hope that that young people coming up see music as a viable and valued uh, part of their lives, whether they're going to make their full-time living in the industry or whether it's just something that really informs them and makes them feel most like themselves when they walk out the door in the morning. I hope they don't have to go somewhere else to, to, to get that buzz and to feel like, yes, this is a community for me. Ultimately, music cities are about making music part of the conversation. What that looks like will depend on the wants and needs of a given city and its music community. Like it or not, without the Music City framework, music is going to be left out in the cold when it comes to city planning decisions. Every music policy needs a vision. You have to state that you're doing it. I think that being able to communicate music in the language in which it needs to be communicated is the first basic tenet. When music venues close, the music industry tends not to know the real reasons why, the political reasons, the land value-based reasons. We know the general reasons. Music venues are not the most lucrative use of a building but there's a process in how land is valued and how land is classified if we don't aim to understand that system then we don't know how to fix it 
but without that detailed understanding of what is wrong from a land use perspective, what is wrong from a um, reactive licensing perspective, so how the activity in buildings is managed, especially if alcohol is served. Um, and then third is an environmental perspective. So that includes sound slash noise and environmental health, which is not just noise. It's literally people's health. That's density. That's um, how many people can be in a place, capacity issues, fire safety regulation. When these issues converge, the way the buildings are set up, the way that land is allocated with how usage in those buildings is managed often music gets put down the totem pole because music is complicated. As I said, it's ubiquitous. You can't stop it from getting into places. And admittedly, compared to some other industries, we're not the world's easiest industry to work with because we are a, we're a multi, multiplicitous industry. There's industries within industries, and it can be difficult. So you talk to the live sector, that doesn't mean that you're getting to know the publishing sector. So... If you make something difficult for someone, if you do not provide them with the path of least resistance, they're just going to unintentionally not recognize your point of view. And if then you add 30 years on, you add economic issues within the music industry, and then you bring in regeneration, and the fact that we have more people living in cities, they need places to live, and the value of land increases with that, then one of the first things to go is cultural venues. And if you don't have an infrastructure that beyond all of that recognizes and legislates the, uh, the protection of cultural venues in whatever way, then they're going to go. We have to stop thinking about the, uh, the, the brand and, and thinking about the fact that there's a lot of very detailed and in some cases boring work that needs to be done in order to recognize how we value, measure, assess, structure, and then plan for music to be made as available as possible across all cultures, genres, societies, and so on in a particular place. And stop thinking about Music City and just start thinking about music in our city. That does it for another episode of Shift Disturbers. Hopefully you've come away with a better sense of what a music city is, as well as the challenges facing both music communities and municipal governments when it comes to making music part of that conversation. Our thanks to Mike Tanner and Shane Shapiro. The next Toronto Music City Advisory Council meeting is February 7th, and the next Sound Diplomacy Music Cities Convention is in April in Melbourne, Australia. This episode was written and produced by myself, Ian Gormley. If you want to know more about the goings-on around the Martin Prosperity Institute, head over to martinprosperity.org or follow us on Twitter. To make sure you never miss an episode of Shift Disturbers, click the subscribe button. And if you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review and don't be afraid to tell your friends about us. Once again, I'm Ian Gormley and thanks for listening.